Evidence and Answers. A recent Pew Research reveals that Buddhism is the third most practiced religion in America. What accounts for the popularity of Buddhism? What does Buddhism teach? How can we reach our Buddhist friends for Christ in a way that they would respond? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In this episode of Evidence and Answers, let's tune in as Pat explains the history and teachings of Buddhism. This is part one of this exciting message. One of the fastest growing religions here in the United States is the religion of Buddhism. The 2012 Pew Research study recently showed that there are nearly 500 million Buddhists in the world. So that would make it about the fourth largest religion in the world. Pew Research Forum of U.S. Religious Landscape Survey showed that Buddhism is now the third most practiced religion in America. And in North America, there are nearly four million Buddhists. It was found that the majority of Buddhists were Gen Xers. In other words, those between the ages of 30 and 49. Also, American Buddhism's growth is predominantly based on the conversion of native-born Americans, showing that Asians numbered only about 30% of the Buddhist population. In other words, many in the United States who are embracing Buddhism are native-born Americans, not foreigners or Asians. You know, I remember when I was doing my doctoral work, one of our assignments was to find a particular religious system and develop an apologetics evangelistic approach to witnessing to those in that particular belief system. And so I remember I picked a Buddhist sect of Sokagakai and I remember going in there and and this was here in a Midwestern city here in the United States and the entire congregation there was told there's a Christian coming today alright there's a Christian so Treat him well as he comes to visit and observe what we're doing. Well, when I came in, I was greeted and I sat down on a table with 12 native-born Caucasian Americans. And I was the Asian guy there. And I was the Christian and they were the Buddhist. And so when people were walking in, they were quite confused because they heard a Christian was in town. They saw these 12 Caucasians sitting around the table and me, the lone Asian. So they thought... I, the Asian guy, was the Buddhist, and that these other guys were the Christians, when actually it was the other way around, that the dozen Caucasians sitting there, they were the Buddhists, and I was the lone Christian. And so you can see that a large majority of those who come to embrace Buddhism are native-born Americans. In fact, if you go to one of the biggest Buddhist temples here in the state of Hawaii, and you look at the choir, about half of them are Caucasian or white Americans. You go to the seminary here in Hawaii and there's a good number of Caucasian Americans there studying to become priests in these Buddhist sects. And so a large number of the conversions in those embracing Buddhism here in the United States are native-born Americans. And geographically, the Western United States has more Buddhists than the East Coast. And with the rise of the Asian population, we feel the impact of Buddhism. And in the state of Hawaii, where I'm from, it remains a dominant religion in the state of Hawaii. 
and throughout the United States, many celebrities have embraced Buddhism. Former governor of California, Jerry Brown, in fact, the present governor still, the movie stars Richard Gere, Steven Seagal, probably the most successful basketball coach in the history of the NBA, Phil Jackson, singer Tina Turner, Tiger Woods, and others all claim to have embraced the beliefs of Buddhism. And many Eastern practices are also being embraced by the West, which have with them a strong influence of Buddhism as well. Things like alternative medicine and the martial arts and yoga and other Eastern practices that are very popular here in the United States. And Buddhism has a place in my heart as well. Our family and my heritage is steeped in Japanese Buddhism. In fact, my uncle was the president for many years here of the Hawaii Buddhist Association. And most of the funerals that I go to of friends and family members are at the Buddhist temple and in many of the homes, in fact, including the homes of my grandparents. We have that little Buddhist shrine that sits in the house, remains there in my grandmother's house in Japan and in Hawaii as well. And I grew up going to the Buddhist temple. That's where I learned a lot of the martial arts and how to swim. And so many of my weekends were spent there at the Buddhist temple. And so it has a near and dear place to my heart. And reaching people in Buddhism has always been a burden on my heart and my desire to see people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, no matter what religious faith they're from. But because I was raised in this particular religious system, it's had a great interest on my heart. Well, in order to understand Buddhism, we need to understand first the history of Buddhism. Now, Buddhism began in India. It can actually be considered an offspring of Hinduism. It begins with a man born in the 6th century named Siddhartha Gautama. Now, historians have a lot of difficulty determining the historical accounts of his life because the earliest scriptures we have of Buddha are centuries later to some historians say maybe in 400 years after his life. That's different from the life of Jesus. Unlike the life of Jesus, what we have in the New Testament are early accounts of the life of Christ. Many of them written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. Many of them are first-generation accounts. So they're written by eyewitnesses or their very close associates. And they're written very close to the life of Christ. The Gospels we can date very clearly before 70 A.D. Paul's epistles come about 20 to 30 years after the life of Christ, well within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. Creeds like 1 Corinthians 15, we can date to within five years of the resurrection. And so we know that it takes about two to three generations. A.N. Sherwin White did the most extensive study on this. But it takes about two to three generations or more for legends to develop. And so this is how we know we have a very accurate historical record of the life of Christ. But when it comes to Buddha, the earliest writings we have come centuries later. Therefore, historians have difficulty determining the historical accounts of his life. A lot of what we know is shrouded in myth and legend. But to the best historical facts that we have, to the best of our knowledge, Gautama was born in about the 6th century B.C. in Lumbini, Nepal. 
Now, you can go there today. I've been there to Lumbini. It's a fascinating place there. And it's a national heritage site where you can go and see what is believed to be the birthplace of Buddha or Gautama. There perhaps is the sacred tree that many believe was there, which he meditated under early in his life. There's the pool there in which his mother bathed after she gave birth. And you can walk into what has now become the shrine there in where Buddha was born. And there encased in a large case of glass is a stone with a footprint on it. Looks like it's about a size 8 or something. Anyway, legend has it that when Buddha was born, he walked immediately and there in that stone is his footprint and millions come from all over the world there to worship at that one of the most holy sites in all of Buddhism, Lumbini, Nepal, the, the birthplace there of the Buddha. The story has it that Buddha's father, Sudhodana, was the ruler over northern India or present-day Nepal and the Himalayas. And the story has it that when his son was born, a wise sage gave a prophecy and said, your son will change the world, either as a beggar, as a monk, a religious person, or as a powerful king. Well, Sudhodana wanted his son, of course, to take the second path, that of royalty. And so he sheltered his son from the outside world and confined him to the palace, surrounding him with wealth and pleasure. Gotama wanted to see what was outside the palace walls. And there's several versions of this story. Some say that he snuck out by night and went on his famous chariot ride. Probably the most popular version is that the day before, his father cleared the streets of anything that would be unappealing to the eyes, cleared the streets, and Gotama there with his entourage took that famous chariot ride through the city. And as he journeyed, he saw four things that disturbed him and forever changed his life. He saw an old man suffering. He saw a sick man suffering. He saw a dead man, and then he saw an ascetic meditating. Deeply distressed by the pain and suffering that he saw, it haunted him day and night to the point where finally one night he kissed his wife and his son goodbye and left the palace once and for all in search of the answer to pain and suffering. Now Gotama studied the Hindu scriptures under the Brahmin priests and he became disillusioned with the teachings of Hinduism. It is then he devoted himself to a life of asceticism, of meditation and fasting. Now legend has it that he learned to survive on one grain of rice a day, reducing his body to a skeleton. In fact, it even states that he got so skinny that if you poked him in the stomach, your finger would be protruding out his back. Well, he concluded that asceticism does not lead to peace. It only weakens the mind and the body. So he took what's called the middle road. He eventually turned to a life of meditation. And the story has it that one day while meditating under the Bodhi tree or the fig tree, the tree of wisdom, he experienced the highest degree of God consciousness called Nirvana. There upon his enlightenment, he became known as the Buddha or the enlightened one. And he's believed to have found the answer to pain and suffering. And he preached his message 
throughout the world. Now, his teachings gained a quick audience since many there in India were disillusioned with Hinduism. And by the time of his death at the age of 80, Buddhism had become a major force in India and about three centuries later spread from India to the rest of Asia. Now, in the earliest Buddhist writings that we have, Buddha never claimed to be deity. He never claimed to be a god. Only the one who could show the way, the way shower. However, about 700 years later, his followers began to worship him as a deity. But in the earliest scriptures, it was understood that Buddha was a man, a good teacher, one who is believed to have attained enlightenment and shows others the way to enlightenment. Well, after Buddha's death, a meeting of his followers, the first council, took place and it was attempted to collect some of his early writings there and the collection is called the Three Baskets. A second council met nearly a hundred years later and already we're beginning to see a division in Buddhism and we already were beginning to see two distinct strands of Buddhism that we see today. And I'll talk about them more a little bit later. But Northern Buddhism, Buddhism that went up north to Japan, China, Korea, Tibet, that took on a certain distinct set of beliefs. And Buddhism that went to the south called Southern Buddhism that went to Southeast Asia also took on a certain flavor. And so we have two very distinct forms of Buddhism that formed very quickly after the death of Buddha. Now, Buddhism remained mostly in India for three centuries until King Ashoka, who ruled India from 274 to 232 BC, he converted to Buddhism. And it is this king that sent missionaries throughout the world, and Buddhism began to spread all over Asia. Now, that is a brief history of Buddhism. Now, let's look at some of the key doctrines of Buddhism. Now, the doctrines that I'm covering are what Buddha originally taught. There are over a thousand different schools of Buddhism today and many of them have embraced and have developed very unique kinds of theological doctrines that are different from what Buddha originally taught. Some of the Buddhist temples here, and I'll explain why, but if Buddha entered some of these temples he wouldn't recognize the religion he's looking at. So there are over a thousand Buddhist schools that have developed, but what I'm going to try and share is the basic teachings of Buddhism according to the original teachings of Buddhism. Right? First, God in Buddhism. Many will be surprised that Buddhism does not believe in a personal God. The primary focus in Buddhism is on the individual attaining enlightenment. And so a divine being or speculation of such really only hinders the process of enlightenment and really it's a system focused on the person attaining enlightenment and so God really would be irrelevant to this particular system. Most Buddhists would state that the teachings of the Buddha or the Dharma make God unnecessary. For example, the Dalai Lama, perhaps the most well-known figure in Buddhism in the world, one of the most recognized spiritual leader in the world, says this, the entire Buddhist worldview is based on a philosophical standpoint in which the central thought is the principle of interdependence, how all things and events come into 
being purely as the result of interactions between causes and conditions. Within that philosophical worldview, it is almost impossible to have any room for an atemporal, eternal, absolute truth. Nor is it possible to accommodate the concept of a divine creation. One of the best Buddhist websites out there is Buddha.net. And if you go to Buddha.net, there's a lot of great essays and articles written there by many Buddhist leaders. And there's a Q&A section. And in that Q&A section, there's the question, do Buddhists believe in God? And here's the response from one of its priests. It says, no, we do not believe in a God. There are several reasons for this. The Buddha, like modern sociologists and psychologists, believe that religious ideas, and especially the God idea, have their origins in fear. So although Buddhism believes in spiritual beings, the concept of God really is irrelevant or not a part of the Buddhist system. Second, and here's an important concept to understand in Buddhism, is the understanding of true reality. And it's that the world is an illusion. Whatever is temporary, therefore, is simply an illusion. It's like a dream, right? A dream doesn't stick around with you forever. It's here and then it's gone. Therefore, the world is an illusion. And behind the world is the void. Okay, and that's a key concept to understand in Buddhism. Buddha taught that much of the pain and suffering that occurs is because you get attached to things of this world, which is an illusion. You get attached to people and places and things, and that is an illusion. It's like investing in a mirage or in a business that doesn't exist. And to see those things go away is tremendously painful. So you don't want to invest in a mirage or something that's not real. And the world and our individualism even is an illusion. And behind the world is the void. Unenlightened people think this world is real. And they get attached to people and things of this world. True enlightened people understand that this world is simply an illusion. And what is behind the illusion is the void third concept is anatha or there's no individual self the individual self is simply an illusion fourth the concept of karma or the law of cause and effect you are what you are as a result of what you did in a previous incarnation and that leads to the next concept samsara everything is in a birth and rebirth cycle so there's no individual soul that passes on the individual self is an illusion Hey, what passes on? We're made up of five parts, or called the five aggregates. They disassemble at death, and then they reassemble in the next incarnation. And how they reassemble in the new individual, well, that is not quite known. Hey, so what are those five aggregates? Well, they're, they're sets of feelings and impressions and memories and karma. And so the new individual will be different, but with many similarities and how much is really not clearly defined. And the final concept is that of nirvana. Nirvana means the blowing out of existence, like the blowing out of a candle. It's not a place, as we understand it as Christians, as heaven or hell. It's a state of being. It's a state in which the rebirth process comes to an end and the individual ceases to exist. 
And what exactly Nirvana is, Buddha didn't really describe. Here's some of the earliest writings. As he talked about Nirvana, he stated, There is, disciples, a condition where there is neither earth nor water, neither air nor light, neither limitless space nor limitless time, neither any kind of being, neither ideation or non-ideation, neither this world nor that world. There is neither arising nor passing away, nor dying, neither cause nor effect, neither change nor stand still. In the writings of the Udana, it states that the Buddha taught, There is, O monks, an unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed state. Were there not, O monks, this unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed state, there would be no escape from the world of the born, originated, created, or formed. So nirvana is not a place like heaven. It is a place where existence comes to an end. Consciousness comes to an end. It's the blowing out of existence. That is nirvana, where the cycle of rebirth and the experience of pain and suffering therefore come to an end. That is nirvana, not heaven as Christians would understand it. There are Buddhist sects that teach a heaven and a hell, but that's a much later development. And historical evidence shows that came as the result of Buddhists interacting with Christian missionaries who were there in Asia. But Buddha, he didn't teach about a heaven or a hell in original Buddhism. It is nirvana, the blowing out of existence. So from these doctrines, you can see that really Buddhism focuses on the person, the individual, attaining enlightenment, escaping the cycle of rebirth and the extinguishing out of existence in a state of nirvana. Without God in the system, there's many questions, such as the origins questions, that really Buddhism does not address. You know, in fact, a few centuries ago, when Christian missionaries were there in Japan, they discovered this very thing as well. Francis Xavier, who brought Western Christianity to Japan, studied Buddhism, which was the dominant religion there. And in his journal, you know, he addresses this issue. He says this, The Japanese doctrines of Buddhism teach absolutely nothing concerning the creation of the world, of the sun, the moon, the stars, the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the rest. And do not believe that they have any origin but themselves. The people of Japan were greatly astonished on hearing it was said that there's one sole author and common father of souls by whom they were created. This astonishment was caused by the fact that in their religious traditions there is nowhere any mention of a creator of the universe. He goes on to state that the Japanese asked a multitude of questions concerning the first cause of all things, whether he was good or bad, whether the same first cause for the origin of good and of evil, we replied that there exists one only first cause, and he's supremely good without any admixture of evil. So you can see one of the great voids in the Buddhist system, even back from centuries ago, is the concept of God and origins is missing. And that's, I'll share later, one of the great places in which we can share, because this is a huge void in Buddhism that you can share with a Buddhist that there is a God who created the universe and that Jesus Christ made it possible to have a personal relationship with the one who created the universe. This is absolutely fascinating to many of those in the Buddhist system. I remember growing up when it, and I first heard that 
there's a personal God who created the universe and wants a relationship with me. That was very, very intriguing. So those are some of the basic doctrines of Buddhism. When we're back together next time, I'll talk about some of the basic practices of Buddhism, man's problem, and how to attain enlightenment, and some of the best ways we can share with our Buddhist friends and family members. So we'll see you next time here on Evidence and Answers. We've run out of time for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed part one of Pat's study on Buddhism. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you would like to partner with us, please start with prayer and then log on to our website to donate. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Join us here next time for part two of this exciting study on Buddhism with your host, Dr. Pat Zucker.